And as psychiatrists have said to me over and over again, jail in particular, but jail and prison are both really psychogenic places. In other words, they are places that cause psychosis. So if you've been in a jail, you know, even the nicer ones, they're loud, they're chaotic, they're, the lights are on all night. Um, and they're, they're scary and they're disorienting, even if you're completely in your right mind. Welcome to Voir Dire, conversations from the Criminal Justice Policy Program at Harvard Law School. I'm your host, Skylar Dom, and today I'm talking to Elisa Roth, the author of Insane, America's Criminal Treatment of Mental Illness. And we're having this conversation because if you've ever spent any time in our prisons, jails, or courts, you know that there are a lot of people with mental illness cycling through this system. But it's not something that gets talked about enough. So this is our attempt to start that conversation. So Elisa, let's start off with how did you come to write this book? I was doing a lot of work on criminal justice and that world. And I realized that as we talk about criminal justice reform, we've come to this understanding that that race plays a critical role part in in the conversation about criminal justice and we're increasingly understanding that money and the lack thereof in other words poverty plays a significant role in the world of criminal justice and i realized that mental health was that third piece that people weren't talking about in any consistent way and obviously there's overlap in all three of those. And obviously there are other issues involved in, in criminal justice, but this realization too, that, that mental health and mental illness play into criminal justice from that very first encounter with police, um, or even before that, if we're thinking about trauma and things that people are seeing in their world that's maybe helping lead them into that initial contact with police all the way through to probation, parole, reentry, um, the death penalty, you name it, that, that mental health and mental illness play a piece in that. Um, and so it, it felt like this story that really needed to be told on this issue that really needs to be talked about if we're going to talk about criminal justice reform. Okay, so I want to spell out the connections between mental health and the criminal system, and I, and I want to take this sort of chronologically if we can. So let's start with how would someone with mental illness find themselves getting funneled into the criminal system? People find their way into the criminal justice system in all sorts of ways, of course. And as you, I mean, and people with mental illness in some cases are finding their ways into the system in the same ways that, that anybody else is. Um, but for people with mental illness, I think that all of the risk factors are exacerbated. So for example, we can look at the, the war on drugs and we say, 
we arrest large numbers of people for things related to drugs, whether it's having them, selling them, dealing them, um, using them, etc. If we look at the population of people with mental illness who are incarcerated um, and look at how many of those people have a co-occurring, to use the technical term, substance use disorder, the number is something like 80%. And that's a, a very conservative number. So if we say we're, we're arresting a large number of people relating re, related to something, we're arresting a large number of people because of something to do with substance use. And a large number of people with mental illness have a substance use disorder and vice versa. Then it makes sense just numerically that there's going to be a lot of overlap. So when we talk about all these other reasons that people get arrested, at least when we're we're talking about the low-level arrests, so things like you know disorderly conduct or public urination, things like that. Again, we have this heavy overlap of people with mental illness living on the streets or just in the streets, and so people are getting picked up that way. And then there's the other part, which I hear often from lawyers, is that for people with mental illness, dealing with police and dealing with figures of authority broadly defined can be particularly complicated. And so, you know, if, if you get pulled over for driving too fast, you know to say to the officer, I'm so sorry, I was in a rush, I didn't realize I was going over the speed limit, I have a great driving record, all those things that would sort of help smooth it out. And it's not to say that you wouldn't get a ticket necessarily, but it's just you're not likely to end up getting arrested for driving, you know, 15, 20 miles even over the speed limit. But for a person with mental illness who it becomes because of the disease, they just can't quite, you know, do all of those smoothing out things. And so instead of saying, I'm so sorry, officer, you start saying, you know, why did you pull me over? What's your problem? You know, you open the door when you're not supposed to all those things. And so often somebody will end up getting at least, from the lawyers I've talked, you know, what I hear is that, that people end up getting arrested for sort of stupid or often end up getting arrested for sort of stupid things that given different circumstances, you might be able to avoid. Okay. So you touched on this a little bit, but what are some of the things that people are actually getting arrested for? Um, and you know what, even before we get there, I should ask just around terminology is the preferred terminology People with mental illness, um, people who suffer from mental illness, what is the preferred ter terminology? Any of those are fine. Thank you for asking. Um, I think the main thing is that it's people first, so it's not a schizophrenic person, but rather a person with schizophrenia, um, et cetera. But as long as any of those that you said are, are fine. The other one that... that raises a red flag for some people is the word suffer. So somebody who suffers from mental illness, um, I've heard other people say, you know, 
nobody enjoys having schizophrenia, so we should don't, you know, it's okay to say they suffer, but um, it's basically the people-centered language. Okay, so then back to the question, what are people getting arrested for? What are the types of infractions that are getting people into the system? So I think we need to separate, or it might be useful to separate between the sort of low-level crimes, whether they're charges, misdemeanors, or felonies is a different conversation, but sort of low-level stuff, um, you know, nonviolent or low-level violence or the, the legal term, but where, where there's no, like, a victimless crime. Um, and serious violent crimes like murder or rape or kidnapping. Um, so if we're looking at the low-level crimes, we see people with mental illness being arrested for the same things that, that other people get arrested for. And it, it, it's anywhere from the disorderly conduct to, you know, shoplifting, all these things. And it's, it's just that when we look at the people who are arrested for those, the proportion of people with mental illness is much higher than in the general population. And, Again, it comes back to these things like not knowing how to deal with the police, or it, it can get more complicated. Like, is that person stealing food because he's a quote unquote criminal, or is he stealing food because he's hungry and he's hungry because he doesn't have a job and he doesn't have a job because he has mental illness? So, as with any other person dealing with the criminal justice system, there's this broad range of, of crimes and a broad range of um, reasons that the people are committing the crimes. I think there's a growing realization, at least among some people, that just as we shouldn't be arresting people in large numbers for what amounts to a substance use disorder. We shouldn't be arresting people with mental illness that, that having somebody with mental illness locked up for disorderly conduct, if that disorderly conduct is walking down the street, talking to oneself or, or yelling at people even, um, that it's not helpful. It's not, it's not, it's not helping people deal with their illness. It's not helping people deal with their larger issues, whether that's homelessness or unemployment or food insecurity or what have you. Um, but it's also disruptive to the system. It means that the, the jails and the prisons are terribly crowded and they're terribly crowded with people who are often disruptive. Um, and we can come back to this question of what happens to people when they're actually locked up. Yes, great. So let's put a pin in what it's like when people are actually in prison being punished. Because as I said, I want to go chronologically. So let's talk now about the adjudication process and how does that look different for people who are who have mental illness? I'm thinking so for example, there's a there's a man that I call Kyle Muhammad in the book, and he was arrested a number of times over the years, and you can correlate in his case, if you look at when he would go off his medication, which it's worth noting is a very, very common issue, not just with people with mental illness, people in general aren't 
terribly good at, at staying on their medication, but people with mental illness in particular, the medications have very strong side effects and people start to feel better after a while. And they say, Oh, I'm, I'm all better. I don't need this anymore. I quit taking the medication. And in Kyle's case, you could see he would, he would go off the medication and sometimes take a few months, but then he would start to get arrested and he, he would get picked up. Sometimes it was for, um, really stupid things like jumping the turnstile. So, you know, riding the subway without paying the fare. Sometimes it's for stuff that's technically illegal, but I would argue shouldn't be an arrestable offense. So for example, selling loose cigarettes. Um, of course we know the story of, of Eric Garner who, who was eventually killed by the police when he was selling cigarettes. Um, and in the last, his most recent case, um, and I met him when he was involved in this case, he had been on the subway. He saw a woman that he says he thought he recognized as the mother of a friend, if I remember him right. Um, he followed her off the subway. It was She was an elderly woman. And then depending whether you're listening to him or the, the complainant or the, the DA's office, he either bashed into her and she fell over or he pushed her and she fell over. And he was charged with assault. And because of his record, it became this very serious situation where he was facing something like seven years in prison. And so, and I should back up and say that the day before Kyle was arrested, his mother had actually filed a warrant for him to be picked up and hospitalized against his will um, because she was worried about his mental state and she had enough documentation and was, was worried enough that, that she had convinced the judge that this should be put in place. So here's this guy who's, his mom is trying to get him put into the hospital. And of course it's very hard to hospitalize somebody against their will. And it's, it's worth Remembering, we make it very, very hard to hospitalize somebody. We make it very, very easy to incarcerate somebody. So the mom tried to get him picked up. The way it works in New York is you you file this warrant and you actually send the police out to pick them up. Um, but before the police could find him for the civil warrant, they picked him up on this, this assault. Um, and he went to Rikers, the, the jail in New York. And as psychiatrists have said to me over and over again, jail in particular, but jail and prison are both really psychotogenic places. In other words, they are places that cause psychosis. So if you've been in a jail, you know, even the nicer ones, they're loud, they're chaotic, they're, the lights are on all night, um, and they're, they're scary and they're disorienting, even if you're completely in your right mind. And if you're having trouble processing reality, it's, it's that much more difficult to follow the rules, to know what you're supposed to do. Um, and so Kyle spent close to two years in Rikers. He was 
at one point he was sent to the hospital, but for most of it, he was in jail. He was getting sent for psychiatric visits periodically, and he was put on medication. Um, but there was no consistent medical care, no consistent um, physician that he was seeing, no therapy, no um and none of even the sort of basic things, you know, one of the psych, one of the psychiatrists at Rikers said to me once that we could take half the people off the mental health roster if we just got people regular sleep, regular meals, exercise, and time outdoors. Um, in other words, being locked in a cage is really hard on your mental health. Um, and so... Now I'm forgetting what the original question was. I'm sorry. I'm off on my Rikers tangent here. Um, That's okay. I think we're, we're in an interesting place, but the original question was how does adjudication look different? Oh, right. Right. Well, I can, let me come back to that then. Cause I have a, Kyle has a great example here. Um, the problem. So, so as you know, that the, the criminal cases often last a very long time, particularly if the person is unwilling or unable to take a plea for some reason. Um, and in Kyle's case, because they, the, he was facing seven years and the, the offers weren't particularly appealing and he really believed that he was innocent. Um, and I think even to this day, he believes to a point that he was innocent. I've tried to kind of he's this out of him to understand what he sees. And I haven't quite understood, um, what is or isn't right, but he was coming back to court all the time. And he, at one point showed up in court and was so psychotic. He stood up and I've seen the, the transcript from this day, he stood up and started shouting at the judge about his rights being violated and wanting to fire his lawyer and all these things. And it got to the point where the, the bailiffs actually dragged him out and his mother, who was in court, she went to every single court hearing he had over the course of almost two years. She described to me how he was holding onto the chair and the bailiffs are dragging him out. She said it was like a toddler having a temper tantrum, but imagine a man who's, you know, six feet something tall. Um, and then every time he came to court after that, the judge called, he would be called the absolute last on the docket um, so it means he was sitting in a cell at Rikers all day. He'd be woken up at something like four o'clock in the morning to be brought on a bus to the court downtown. And then he would sit in that cell all day waiting to be heard. And then he would be brought in for the hearing. Um, and I remember the judge always kind of giving the, the bailiffs, the, the signal that they need to be on, on high alert. Um, and so that's just one example of where the, the adjudication can be slowed down by mental illness, because I think it really, um, tarnished how he was seen, but also made it more complicated just to deal with him. The other piece of it is because he had a prior record, um, nobody wanted to let him into, um, 
a treatment alternative or something like that. And it, and it took part of why he sat in Rikers so long is that his attorney was trying to figure out how to get him into mental health court and how to get him accepted into mental health court, even though he technically had a, a, a felony charge against him and a violent charge against him. Um, and this, this record. So it just, it complicates things every single step of the way. I've talked to attorneys who talk about, um, their clients who, who, that, you know, you're supposed to be able to help your attorney with your defense and you have to understand the charges against you. And the attorney talks about how, you know, the, the man understands the charges against him, but he doesn't, he, he's so sick that he's afraid to talk to her except in code. Well, if he's only talking to her in code, then nobody else, you know, she obviously, she can't understand him. So, so what do you do with that? So every step of the way, the mental illness complicates matters. Mm, okay. So you started to touch on what Kyle's experience was like while he was actually incarcerated at Rikers, but let's go there now. Cause there's some very disturbing examples in your book of what punishment looks like um, or what incarceration looks like for people with mental illness post-adjudication or while the adjudication is taking place? Well, as you know, the, the criminal justice system, we talk about it as a system, but it's, of course, thousands of little tiny systems. Um, and the, the circumstances vary dramatically from place to place. Um, the other thing that you probably know is that, that people with mental illness are the only group of people in the U.S. who have a constitutional right to health care, and that includes mental health care. The problem is, is that courts have left very um, open-ended what a reasonable form of healthcare looks like and different systems have interpreted that in different ways. So there are abs- I have absolutely met doctors and other mental health care providers and corrections officers who really want the best for people. I think there's a growing small but growing sense that people in jail and prison represent a pun semi-intended captive audience. Um, and so let's take advantage of this and help people get on track with their health, whether that's getting their blood pressure and diabetes under control or whether that's getting them back on their medications for schizophrenia. And so for example, in Los Angeles County, um, there's been a, a real push to get people back on their medications and keep them on their medications. And even a, a very common problem when people are arrested and come to jail, having been on medication, either they don't have the medication with them or the jail has a rule that says you can't bring in medication. And so there'll be this very, very long wait when the person is first locked up before they're put back on the medication. And of course, every day that you're off medication is, is, you know, time that, that the person is doing worse or not doing better. And so there's, there was a push in the LA County jail recently, um, to get somebody on that medication as quickly as possible. Um, 
and they'll go back and, and figure out exactly what needs to be done and, and, and tweak the dose and all the rest of it, you know, in the, in the following days. But as soon as that person comes in and says, I've been on this medication for this time, get that person on that medication as quickly as possible. The problem is, is that many, many jails and prisons don't have the money, don't have the staff and don't have the, the will, I would argue, um, to get people the kind of treatment they need. So what does that look like? Um, in a lot of places, it means there is no medicated medication assisted treatment for substance use disorder. So you have somebody who comes in on methadone or suboxone and they are taken off of it in the jail or prison, either, um, for money reasons or for philosophical reasons. Um, a person may get a minimal mental health screening when they come in, but not always. Um, but then they may not be able to see a psychiatrist for a very long time, or they may not be able to see a psychiatrist at all. And, and it, it, it may take weeks to get the person on the medication or if the medication isn't working, it may take weeks to get the medication switched. Um, as you may know, um, psychotropic medications are particularly hard to, to tweak. So where, like for a very simple example, let's say strep throat, you come in, they're going to say, okay, you need to be on, I'm making this up because I'm not a doctor, but like amoxicillin this dose for two weeks or something like that, right? And it's pretty straightforward. And if that doesn't work, they'll come up with something else. But the protocol is very clear and very well studied. With mental health issues, it's not that clear. And it often takes a bunch of tries to either get the dosing right or the medication right or some combination. And so if you don't have a doctor who, who's willing to work with you on it, it can take a very, very long time to get the person stabilized. Um, the other very, very worrying piece of it is there's often a very long lag in recognizing it. So there's somebody else that I, I talked to for the book, a man named Brian Sanderson, who ended up getting arrested in South Carolina. And he had been on lithium he has bipolar disorder. He'd been on lithium for a while, but then had gone off his medication. Um, and it took months before the, the staff in the jail he was in recognized that he actually needed to see a doctor. And then it was a long time after that before they finally got him on a dosage that he, the way he describes it, he was sort of made half sane after that. But probably the worst piece of it all is that we often see people in jails and prisons punished for behavior that's connected to their mental illness and it becomes a vicious cycle. And so the quickest response or the quickest and easiest quote unquote response, if somebody comes in and is behaving in a disruptive manner is to throw them in solitary and get them out of the general population. It gets them away from everybody else. It it requires staff, but it requires in some ways less one-on-one -on -one staff because they're just locked up. But as you probably know, solitary confinement is terrible for, for people with mental illness and can, and is, and is so awful that it can even trigger symptoms in people who didn't have them before. Um, and people with mental illness will often be punished with solitary and then punished further for behavior 
in solitary. So they're not following the rules in solitary. So they're getting more time in solitary. Wow. Okay. Um, so switching gears a little bit then, why don't you help me understand how big this problem is? What is the scale of the issue? It's big. Um, there have been studies that, sh- that show that a person with serious mental illness has a one in two chance of being arrested over the course of, of his or her lifetime, um, which is very, very high, even when we're looking at the, the possibility of arrest or the likelihood of arrest over the course of a lifetime just for being a young black male, say. Um, the numbers are tricky in terms of exactly how many people in the criminal justice system have a mental illness um, for a number of reasons. One is that how do we define who has a mental illness varies from place to place. So, for example, some places might consider PTSD um, a mental health disorder and some places won't. Um, but the the some there by best estimates, something like 50% of people who are locked up in jails and prisons have a mental illness. I've heard much higher numbers from individual institutions. Um, the other question is if, if we you know, do include substance use disorder as a, as a mental health disorder or something separate. Um, and when you look at substance use disorder, it's astonishing numbers. I was talking to a jail administrator today, um, in Minnesota told me that he thinks 80% of his people have a substance use disorder. Um, so it's, the, the numbers are pretty astonishing. And how did we get here? I mean, is this the way that we've always dealt with mental illness in this country or is this a new development? We can go all the way back to before we were a country. Um, and we have always put people with mental illness into jail or prison as a well, as a, as a place to warehouse them effectively, uh, we don't know where else to put them. So you can go back and see that Benjamin Franklin back in like the 1760s was saying, we are putting people in, in jail because we don't have anywhere else for them to go. And you can see that all the way throughout history, that jail is the default answer because in part the jail can't turn people away. What has made it worse in recent years is that we as a country, as you know, incarcerate by orders of magnitude more people than any other country in the world. And so when we have this enormous net of people that we're catching and you compound that with the issue of, of drugs and arresting people for drug use, possession, et cetera, et cetera. And there's that overlap of people with mental health disorders and substance use disorders. We end up incarcerating huge numbers of people. So it is that we've always done this, but we've made it worse because the, the, incarceration problem in this country has grown so phenomenally large. So what does this say about us as a society? I mean, what does the fact that we seem to process mental illness in our society through the criminal system 
say about our society or the criminal system's you know, philosophy and, and purpose? I mean, I think that we've had this question throughout our history, why do we lock people up? And what are we trying to gain from locking people up? And I, if, if you look at the history of incarceration in the United States, we've gone through different phases of this idea of you know, locking people up to help make them, you know, to punish them, but to, to make, to ultimately make them better people versus we're locking people up just to punish them and get them off the streets. And I think that the ways that we're arresting people with mental illness clearly fit into that second, that second piece. I mean, we're, we're not doing it. We can't say that we're trying to make people better because we're not, people are coming into the system sick and they're coming out sicker. Um, and I think it says a lot. I mean, I think that in a way, if we look at, at the population of people with mental illness who are incarcerated, they are among the most vulnerable people in our society. And so what does that say about us as a society if we think that, that we take the people who are most vulnerable and make it even harder for them? Um, I talked to this this jail administrator I was talking to today told me the story of a of a, a guy who was being held in his jail, a man who was being held in his jail, who the corrections officer came to him and said, you know, I think this this man is on a hunger strike. He hasn't eaten in a day and a half. And it turned out that the man had such a low IQ, was so developmentally disabled that he didn't understand that he needed to get up and and receive the tray from the corrections officer to get his meal. Like he had spent his entire adult life and maybe his entire life in, in a group home where he'd gotten in a fight, but he had all, and, and that was how he had ended up in the system. But he, he had spent all his time in this group home where he was being taken care of. Um, and suddenly he's ended up in jail and he can't even take care of himself enough to feed himself. Now he didn't have a mental illness as far as I know, but I think that it, it says the same thing. This is, these are the most vulnerable people who are most in need of our help. And instead we're, we're making everything even worse than it was. So just to clarify, when you say he didn't have a mental illness, it's because he had a developmental disability. That was my, yes, I don't know if he actually had a mental illness, but he absolutely had a developmental disability. And I've heard stories of people with mental illness who are in similar situations where they just, they can't, because their understanding of reality is so different from reality, they just cannot function, whether that's, you know, you need to stand up for count or you need to show up in, in the mess hall for chow. Um, people who literally just cannot function in the system. So it sounds like you're identifying if the purpose of punishment is not rehabilitation, as it's being enacted, then it sounds like punishment's purpose is more like retribution or some kind of inca incapacitation. And I guess that brings me to a question of 
incapacitation, what would you say to the people who agree with you that these folks are really vulnerable and would like to see them get better, but without knowing how to help them get better, those people are worried about people with mental illness being out in the community. How would you respond to the argument that, well, yes, we actually need incapacitation because it's how we keep the community safe? I think, first of all, we need to differentiate between the danger to the community and danger to themselves. Um, Because I think a lot of the time what we're talking about is people being a danger to themselves. And that might be an active active of self-harm, but it could also be the person who doesn't understand that he can't be living on the street with no shoes when it's 20 degrees outside. Um, I think we have to step back and say, we need more mental health care and we need better access to mental health care. And with that, we need access to all the things that, that all of us need access to, um, housing and food and, and some means of support and all of these things. And I think we make it incredibly difficult for people to access those things. And so when you compound that, I mean, they, they, they would be hard even if you had all the intelligence in the world. Um, so for example, at one point in New York, I wanted to figure out, I was curious how many doctors in New York city, um, accepted, how many psychiatrists accepted Medicaid and were accepting new patients. And mind you, I am reasonably educated and reasonably intelligent. English is my first language. I was being paid to figure this out. So I wasn't taking away time from a job or time from trying to find a safe place to sleep or where, you know, getting my food, let alone getting my medication. And I could not figure it out. And I finally went to the Medicaid office at one of the public hospitals and was handed a list and of different Medicaid plans. And depending which plan you had, then you could go online and find this list of doctors. And all I could think about is if I can't do this with all those benefits at my fingertips, how is somebody supposed to do this when they have to worry about all those things, starting with where they're going to sleep and where they're going to eat. Um, and so I think we make it unreasonably challenging for people. And I think particularly on the mental health care front, we know that as with physical disease, people do better when they start getting treatment earlier. Um, and so and yet, because our mental health care system is squeezed so tightly, people aren't able to access care until they are very, very, very far along. Um, and so I always say that the, the physical equivalent is if, if, if a, let's say, a, a 60-year-old man comes in 300 pounds overweight and he tells the doctor he's smoking two packs a day and eating cheeseburgers for three meals a day and he's having chest pains – 
the doctor is not going to say, come back to me when you've had that heart attack or come back to me when you've had that stroke. The doctor is going to sit down and talk to this person about eating right and not smoking and exercising and all these things. And yet in the mental health context, we so often see people being told effectively, like, come back when you're actively suicidal or come back when you're having, you know, when you're actively psychotic and expecting people to somehow a manage to do that and b get better when they do. Um, and so I think we need to step way, way back and, and move upstream from the, the, the problem. Um, that all said, I appreciate that we have a huge number of people for whom it's too late to be saying we need to restructure the mental health care system, quote unquote. Um, and so we need to find ways to keep people, if people are arrested, keep them from getting is sent through the court system or people who are in jail and prison, making sure that they're getting care and treatment that's going to make them better come out better than when they came in and more likely to succeed when they get out. Um, and that we've set the bar so low that that could even mean making sure, you know, we have people who come into jail, get put on medication and then are released with like two or three days supply of medication and told to go find a doctor and get that prescription. And it's like, how is somebody supposed to do that? Um, okay. Even, that seems like fairly low hanging fruit policy. Uh, for sure. And it's, of course, you know, as we were talking about, there's, there's dozens of, of different policies in different places. Um, but certainly, you know, a, a, a three-day supply of medication is is not too hard to fix, and it's and it's it's setting, it's it's making it it's it's setting the person up to fail even before they're being released. So I hear you advocating for better mental health care further upstream, but I'm wondering for people who are in the system, are there diversionary programs or are there places or communities that are dealing with this well that are trying to help people who are in the system? Many, many places are trying to do this well once somebody touches the system. And it ranges from, you know, what we see in Miami-Dade County is is this sort of gold standard of, of getting people diverted immediately from, you know, the moment of arrest, we identify that this person has the mental health issue. We're going to offer them to be diverted out of the system. Um, Judge Lifeman did an amazing job and has been doing an amazing job now for years. Um, so much so that they, they were able to close down an entire wing of the jail there. Um, other places people are, you know, they, they get booked into the system, but once they're in the system, they're finding ways to get them out. Um, many, many places have set up mental health courts. So courts that are, are really aimed at people with, mental illness. Um, and it's, and depending which one you're in, it, it can vary, but it's, it's an accountability system. So if you, you go to treatment and you come in every week to see the judge, um, often the, the charges are dropped or certainly the jail time or the prison time is avoided. So there, there are many, many ways that communities are finding 
to get or to, to deal with this. Um, I think the, the two things that there are a couple of things that worry me. One is I think we need to make sure that the programs are big enough that we're, we're getting most people into the system. So often a mental health court will, will be great, but it's just, it's a tiny program. And so if you're, if it's only helping, you know, 30 or 60 or even a hundred people a year, that's just not enough people to, to really be getting people with mental illness out of the system. Um, the other piece that worries me is that, that we're seeing a lot of jails and prisons talking about providing better mental health care, which is absolutely critical, but we don't want that to become the default mental health care system more than it already has. And so, you know, people will often talk about the mercy booking that, that you arrest somebody and, and at least you're getting them three hots and a cot. So that's better than sleeping on the street when it's 20 degrees outside for sure. But we don't want it to be that people are getting arrested because that's how we're going to get them mental health care. That's the quickest way to get them into the mental health care system. We want people to have ways to get mental health care that, that don't require them getting arrested to do it. That's so interesting. And I'm, I'm coming back to this sort of original triumvirate that you introduced at the beginning of this, uh, you know, race, poverty, and mental health. And it seems to me like some theorists would say that the criminal system, um, or with respect to race, the criminal system is a system of oppression. With respect to poverty, the system is a system of social control. But when it comes to mental health, it sort of it seems like it's a system of default, like we haven't invested anywhere else. And so it's catching folks that there's no other real community response to. Is that a fair characterization? I think that's a fair characterization. I mean, I, I think... You can definitely say no, it's not. No, no, I think it's it's... I think it is fair. And I think that we make it... I think that the other side of this, and we haven't really talked about asylums and the use of asylums, but I think that they sort of fit the same purpose as jails and prisons, which is out of sight and out of mind. Um, and I think it's, it's very easy if it's not your brother or your son or your daughter who's being locked up to say, well, great, that guy who's, you know, standing and blocking my way into the coffee shop in the morning or that person who's scaring me on the subway because he's talking to himself. I don't want to look at him. I don't want to be sitting next to him on the subway. So, so get him. I, if, if he's locked up, then I don't have to, I don't have to deal with it. Right. And we forget. And I think this is true for, for everybody that we lock up because our society has become so separated that for you know, a portion of our society being incarcerated is, is part of the day-to-day, -day, you know, business as usual. And then for this tremendous number of people, it's something that we don't encounter at all and you don't have to encounter. Um, and I think that, that the way we deal with mental illness, um, kind of goes into that same, to that same issue, right? If, if, if 
they're locked up, then I don't have to, it's not my problem anymore. And I, if it's not my problem, then I don't care that they're locked up. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. And I think that's a really great place to end. So thank you, Elisa Roth, and thank you to the people listening. Um, we always appreciate your feedback. You can reach out to us at vardeerpodcast at gmail.com. And while we're saying thank yous, thank you also to Brooke Hopkins of the Criminal Justice Policy Program, to Poddington Bear for composing our theme music, and we'll be back soon.